American Notes, Chapter 11. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter 11. From Pittsburgh to Cincinnati in a Western Steamboat. Cincinnati. The messenger was one among a crowd of high-pressure steamboats clustered together by a wharfside which looked down upon from the rising ground that forms the landing-place, and backed by the lofty bank on the opposite side of the river, appeared no larger than so many floating models. She had some forty passengers on board, exclusive of the poorer persons on the lower deck, and in half an hour or less proceeded on her way. We had for ourselves a tiny stateroom with two berths in it, opening out of the ladies' cabin. There was undoubtedly something satisfactory in this location, inasmuch as it was in the stern, and we had been a great many times very gravely recommended to keep as far aft as possible, because the steamboats generally blew up forward. Nor was this an unnecessary caution, as the occurrence and circumstances of more than one such fatality during our stay sufficiently testified. Apart from the source of self-congratulation, it was an unspeakable relief to have any place, no matter how confined, where one could be alone, and as the row of little chambers of which this was one had each a second-glass door besides that in the ladies' cabin, which opened on a narrow gallery outside the vessel, where the other passengers seldom came, and where one could sit in peace and gaze upon the shifting prospect, we took possession of our new quarters with much pleasure." If the native packets I have already described be unlike anything we are in the habit of seeing on water, these western vessels are still more foreign to all the ideas we are accustomed to entertain of boats. I hardly know what to liken them to, or how to describe them. In the first place they have no mast, cordage, tackle, rigging, or other such boat-like gear, nor have they anything in their shape at all calculated to remind one of a boat's head, stem, sides, or keel except that they are in the water and display a couple of paddle-boxes they might be intended for anything that appears to the contrary to perform some unknown service high and dry upon a mountain-top there is no visible deck even nothing but a long black ugly roof covered with burnt-out feathery sparks above which tower two iron chimneys and a horse escape valve with a glass steerage-house then, in order as the eye descends towards the water, are the sides and doors and windows of the staterooms, jumbled as oddly together as though they formed a small street, built by the varying tastes of a dozen men. The whole is supported on beams and pillars resting on a dirty barge, but a few inches above the water's edge and in the narrow space between this upper structure and this barge's deck are the furnace fires and machinery, open at the sides to every wind that blows and every storm of rain it drives along its path. Passing one of these boats at night and seeing the great body of fire exposed, as I have just described, that rages and roars beneath the frail pile of painted wood, the machinery, not warded off or guarded in any way, but doing its work in the midst of the crowd of idlers and emigrants and children who throng the lower deck, under the management, too, of reckless men whose acquaintance with its mysteries may have been of six months' standing, one feels directly that the wonder is, not that there should be so many fatal accidents, but that any journey should be safely made. Within there is one long, narrow cabin, the whole length of the boat, from which the staterooms open on both sides. 
a small portion of it at the stern is partitioned off for the ladies, and the bar is at the opposite extreme. There is a long table down the centre, and at either end a stove. The washing apparatus is forward on the deck. It is a little better than on board the canal boat, but not much. In all modes of travelling, the American customs, with reference to the means of personal cleanliness and wholesome ablution, are extremely negligent and filthy, and I strongly incline to the belief that a considerable amount of illness is referable to this cause. We are to be on board the messenger three days, arriving at Cincinnati, barring accidents, on Monday morning. There are three meals a day, breakfast at seven, dinner at half-past twelve, supper about six. At each there are a great many small dishes and plates upon the table, with very little in them, so that although there is every appearance of a mighty spread, there is seldom really more than a joint, except for those who fancy slices of beetroot, shreds of dried beef, complicated entanglements of yellow pickle, maize, Indian corn, applesauce, and pumpkin. Some people fancy all these little dainties together, and sweet preserves beside, by way of relish to their roast pig. They are generally those dyspeptic ladies and gentlemen who eat unheard-of quantities of caught corn-bread, almost as good for the digestion as needed pincushion, for breakfast and for supper. Those who do not observe this custom, and who help themselves several times instead, usually suck their knives and forks meditatively until they have decided what to take next, then pull them out of their mouths, put them in the dish, help themselves, and fall to work again. At dinner there is nothing to drink upon the table but great jugs full of cold water. Nobody says anything at any meal to anybody. All the passengers are very dismal, and seem to have tremendous secrets weighing on their minds. There is no conversation, no laughter, no cheerfulness, no sociality except in spitting, and that is done in silent fellowship round the stove when the meal is over. Every man sits down, dull and languid, swallows his fare as if breakfasts, dinners, and suppers were necessities of nature never to be coupled with recreation or enjoyment, and having bolted his food in a gloomy silence, bolts himself in the same state. But for these animal observances, you might suppose the whole male portion of the company to be the melancholy ghosts of departed bookkeepers who had fallen dead at the desk, such as their weary air of business and calculation. Undertakers on duty would be sprightly beside them, and a collation of funeral baked meats in comparison with these meals would be a sparkling festivity. The people are all alike, too. There is no diversity of character. They travel about on the same errands, say and do the same things in exactly the same manner, and follow in the same dull, cheerless round. All down the long table there is scarcely a man who is in anything different from his neighbour. It is quite a relief to have sitting opposite that little girl of fifteen with a loquacious chin, who, to do her justice, acts up to it, and fully identifies nature's handwriting, for of all the small chatterboxes that ever invaded the repose of drowsy ladies' cabins, she is the first and foremost. The beautiful girl, who sits a little beyond her, further down the table there, married the young man with the dark whiskers, who sits beyond her, only last month. They are going to settle in the very far west, where he has lived four years, but where she has never been. They were both overturned in a stagecoach the other day, a bad omen anywhere else where overturns are not so common, and his head, which bears the marks of a recent wound, is bound up still. She was hurt, too, at the same time, 
and lay insensible for some days, bright as her eyes are now. Further down still sits a man who is going some miles beyond their place of destination to improve a newly discovered copper mine. He carries the village, that is to be, with him, a few frame cottages and an apparatus for smelting the copper. He carries its people, too. They are partly American and partly Irish, and herd together on the lower deck where they amused themselves last evening till the night was pretty far advanced, by alternately firing off pistols and singing hymns. They, and the very few who have been left at table twenty minutes, rise and go away. We do so, too, and, passing through our little stateroom, resume our seats in the quiet gallery without. A fine, broad river, always, but in some parts much wider than in others, and then there is usually a green island covered with trees dividing it into two streams. Occasionally we stop for a few minutes, maybe to take in wood, maybe for passengers at some small town or village, I ought to say city, every place is a city here, but the banks are for the most part deep solitudes overgrown with trees, which hereabouts are already in leaf and very green. For miles and miles and miles these solitudes are unbroken by any signs of human life or trace of human footstep, nor is anything seen to move about them but the blue jay, whose colour is so bright and yet so delicate that it looks like a flying flower. At lengthened intervals a log cabin, with its little space of cleared land about it, nestles under a rising ground, and sends its thread of blue smoke curling up into the sky. It stands in the corner of the poor field of wheat, which is full of great unsightly stumps, like earthy butcher's blocks. Sometimes the ground is only just now cleared, the fell trees lying yet upon the soil, and the log-house only this morning begun. As we pass this clearing, the settler leans upon his axe or hammer, and looks wistfully at the people from the world. The children creep out of the temporary hut, which is like a gypsy tent upon the ground, and clap their hands and shout. The dog only glances round at us, and then looks up into his master's face again, as if he were rendered uneasy by any suspension of the common business, and had nothing more to do with pleasurers. And still there is the same eternal foreground. The river has washed away its banks, and stately trees have fallen down into the stream. Some have been there so long that they are mere dry, grisly skeletons, some have just toppled over, and having earth yet about their roots, are bathing their green heads in the river, and putting forth new shoots and branches. Some are almost sliding down as you look at them, and some were drowned so long ago that their bleached arms start out from the middle of the current, and seem to try to grasp the boat and drag it under water. Through such a scene as this, the unwieldy machine takes its horse sullen way, venting at every revolution of the paddles a loud high-pressure blast, enough, one would think, to waken up the host of Indians who lie buried in a great mound yonder, so old that mighty oaks and other forest trees have struck their roots into its earth, and so high that it is a hill even among the hills that nature planted round it. The very river, as though it shared one's feelings of compassion for the extinct tribes who lived so pleasantly here, in their blessed ignorance of white existence hundreds of years ago, steals out of its way to ripple near this mound, and there are few places where the Ohio sparkles more brightly than in the Big Grave Creek. All this I see as I set in the little stern gallery mentioned just now. Evening slowly steals upon the landscape and changes it before me when we stop to set some emigrants ashore. 
Five men, as many women, and a little girl. All their worldly goods are a bag, a large chest, and an old chair. One old high-backed rush-bottom chair, a solitary settler in itself. They are rowed ashore in the boat, while the vessel stands a little off awaiting its return, the water being shallow. They are landed at the foot of a high bank, on the summit of which are a few log cabins attainable only by a long winding path. It is growing dusk, but the sun is very red and shines on the water and on some of the treetops like fire. The men get out of the boat first, help out the women, take out the bag, the chest, the chair, bid the rowers good-bye, and shove the boat off for them. At the first plash of the oars in the water, the oldest woman of the party sits down in the old chair close to the water's edge without speaking a word. None of the others sit down, though the chest is large enough for many seats. They all stand where they landed, as if stricken into stone, and look after the boat. So they remain quite still and silent, the old woman and her old chair in the centre of the bag and chest upon the shore, without anybody heeding them all eyes fixed on the boat. It comes alongside, is made fast, the men jump on board, the engine is put in motion, and we go hoarsely on again. There they stand yet, without the motion of a hand. I can see them through my glass, when, in the distance and increasing darkness, they are mere specks to the eye, lingering there still, the old woman in the old chair, and all the rest about her not stirring in the least degree, and thus I slowly lose them. The night is dark, and we proceed within the shadow of the wooden bank which makes it darker. After gliding past the sombre maze of boughs for a long time, we come upon an open space where the tall trees are burning. The shape of every branch and twig is expressed in a deep red glow, and as the light wind stirs and ruffles it, they seem to vegetate in fire. It is such a sight as we read of in legends of enchanted forests, saving that it is sad to see these noble works wasting away so awfully alone, and to think how many years must come and go before the magic that created them will rear their like upon this ground again. But the time will come, and when in their changed ashes the growth of centuries unborn has struck its roots, the restless men of distant ages will repair to these again unpeopled solitudes, and their fellows in cities far away, that slumber now, perhaps beneath the rolling sea, will read in language strange to any ears in being now, but very old to them, of primeval forests where the axe was never heard, and where the jungled ground was never trodden by a human foot. Midnight and sleep blot out these scenes and thoughts, and when the morning shines again, it gilds the housetops of a lively city before whose broad paved wharf the boat is moored, with other boats and flags, and moving wheels and hum of men about it, as though there were not a solitary or silent rood of ground within the compass of a thousand miles. Cincinnati is a beautiful city, cheerful, thriving, and animated. I have not often seen a place that commends itself so favourably and pleasantly to a stranger at the first glance as this does, with its clean houses of red and white, its well-paved roads, and footways of bright tile. Nor does it become less prepossessing on a closer acquaintance. The streets are broad and airy, the shops extremely good, the private residence is remarkable for their elegance and neatness. There is something of invention and fancy in the varying styles of these latter erections, which, after the dull company of the steamboat, is perfectly delightful, as conveying an assurance that there are such qualities still in existence. 
The disposition to ornament these pretty villas and render them attractive leads to the culture of trees and flowers, and the laying out of well-kept gardens, the sight of which, to those who walk along the streets, is inexpressibly refreshing and agreeable. I was quite charmed with the appearance of the town, and its adjoining suburb of Mount Auburn, from which the city, lying in an amphitheatre of hills, forms a picture of remarkable beauty, and is seen to great advantage. There happened to be a great temperance convention held here on the day after our arrival, and as the order of march brought the possession under the windows of the hotel in which we lodged when they started in the morning, I had a good opportunity of seeing it. It comprised several thousand men, the members of various Washington Auxiliary Temperance Societies, and was marshalled by officers on horseback, who cantered briskly up and down the line, with scarves and ribbons of bright colours fluttering out behind them gaily. There were bands of music, too, and banners out of number, and it was a fresh holiday-looking concourse altogether. I was particularly pleased to see the Irishmen, who formed a distinct society among themselves, and mustered very strong with their green scarves, carrying their national harp and their portrait of Father Matthew high above the people's heads. They looked as jolly and good-humoured as ever, and working here the hardest for their living, and doing any kind of sturdy labour that came in their way, were the most independent fellows there, I thought. The banners were very well painted, and flaunted down the street famously. There was the smiting of the rocks, and the gushing forth of the waters, and there was a temperate man with considerable of a hatchet, as the standard-bearer would probably have said, aiming a deadly blow at a serpent which was apparently about to spring upon him from the top of a barrel of spirits. But the chief feature of this part of the show was a huge allegorical device borne among the ship-carpenters on one side, whereof the steamboat alcohol was represented bursting her boiler and exploding with a great crash, while upon the other the good ship Temperance sailed away with a fair wind to the heart's content of the captain, crew, and passengers. After going round the town, the procession repaired to a certain appointed place, where, as the printed programme set forth, it would be received by the children of the different free schools singing temperance songs. I was prevented from getting there in time to hear these little warblers, or to report upon this novel kind of vocal entertainment, novel at least to me, but I found in a large open space each society gathered round its own banners, and listening in silent attention to its own orator. The speeches, judging from the little I could hear of them, were certainly adapted to the occasion, as having that degree of relationship to cold water which wet blankets may claim, but the main thing was the conduct and appearance of the audience throughout the day, and that was admirable and full of promise. Cincinnati is honourably famous for its free schools, of which it has so many that no person's child among its population can, by possibility, want the means of education, which are extended upon an average to four thousand pupils annually. I was only present in one of these establishments during the hours of instruction. In the boys' department, which was full of little urchins, varying in their ages, I should say, from six years old to ten or twelve, the master offered to institute an extemporary examination of the pupils in algebra, a proposal which, as I was by no means competent of my ability to detect mistakes in that science, I declined with some alarm. In the girls' school, reading was proposed, and as I felt tolerably equal to that art, I expressed my willingness to hear a class. 
Books were distributed accordingly, and some half-dozen girls relieved each other in reading paragraphs from English history. But it seemed to be a dry compilation, infinitely above their powers, and when they had blundered through three or four dreary passages concerning the Treaty of Amiens, and other thrilling topics of the same name, obviously without comprehending ten words, I expressed myself quite satisfied. It is very possible that they only mounted to this exalted stave in the ladder of learning for the astonishment of a visitor, and that at other times they keep upon its lower rounds, but I should have been much better pleased and satisfied if I had heard them exercised in simpler lessons which they understood. As in every other place I visited, the judges here were gentlemen of high character and attainments. I was in one of the courts for a few minutes, and found it like those to which I have already referred. A nuisance cause was trying, there were not many spectators, and the witnesses, counsel, and jury formed a sort of family circle sufficiently jocose and snug. The society with which I mingled was intelligent, courteous, and agreeable. The inhabitants of Cincinnati are proud of their city as one of the most interesting in America, and with good reason, for beautiful and thriving as it is now, and containing as it does a population of fifty thousand souls, but two and fifty years have passed away since the ground on which it stands, bought at that time for a few dollars, was a wild wood, and its citizens were but a handful of dwellers in scattered log huts upon the river shore. End of chapter 11